Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. It's been a while since I've been in this congregation. Yeah, I did, I did the mass the other day because um, with the number of congregations we are now, if I visit a congregation every week, I'll get to each congregation about once a year. And that doesn't count going to Brazil and other places. So it's a real privilege to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for the welcome. And I hope that this morning as the Lord speaks, uh, we're going to fall more in love with him, have a greater revelation of who he is and how we can live for him. So I want to ask you a question. What was the greatest day of your life? What was the greatest day of your life? For some of you, it'll be the day I got married. For others, it'll be the day my child was born. Some of you, it might even be the day I left school. My younger daughter has just matriculated, and the day of her last exam, I think, was the greatest day of her life. I never have to go to school again. If only she knew. No. <laughs> and we all have those days that we can remember, all those days we're looking forward to. Anybody looking forward to a special day? Especially if you're young, you're probably looking forward to a day that's coming up in a couple of weeks' time. This is a bit of a minefield talking about Christmas Day in church because, you know, some people, oh, no, it's a pagan holiday. We mustn't celebrate it and others. You know, when I was young, Christmas Day was one of the best days of the year. Always looked forward to it, and it always seemed like forever before it came. You know, November, December would come along, and the, the songs are in the, in, in the stores, and wherever you go, you hear the Christmas songs. I've been in South Africa almost 30 years now. I still can't get used to the Christmas songs here in the shops. You're walking through the shops, you're sweating, you're in your, your, your shorts and your T-shirt, and it's walking in a winter wonderland. And you go, what? <laughs> but growing up in the UK, it really was cold. And it just that The whole thing was just exciting. These days, it seems like Christmas comes around every five minutes. Time is fleeting, but um, yeah, growing up, it was always a day to be looked forward to. I think uh, my mum had had quite a rough childhood, and she was convinced Christmas was going to be special for us, and we couldn't wait, and we counted down the days, and we had advent calendars, you know, opening the little doors with chocolates behind them so we could count the days down, and, and then the night before Christmas, Christmas Eve, we'd go to bed, and none of us could sleep because we were so excited about this special day that was coming. And, uh, you know, then you'd wake up in the morning and you'd be like, what's the earliest I can wake my parents up? <laughs> Some of you parents know that, right? Go back to sleep, go back to sleep. And then we'd wake up and each of us, we, we had a bag that was, we, we almost had like a family ritual every Christmas day. In fact, I went back a few years ago for Christmas and I was a grown adult, I was like 40, 40 odd years old, and I still had to partake in this kind of family tradition. You wake up and at the end of your bed was a, was a sack with gifts in it, and we'd trudge into my parents' bedroom singing, we wish you a Merry Christmas. And then we would take the gifts out of our bag, and the rule in our family was you took it in turns and you watched each person open their presents. Because part of the joy of Christmas was watching what other people got. It wasn't just, ah, it's mine. Ah. And then once those bags were opened, we would, we would all gather at the top of the stairs 
Well, my parents went downstairs because that's where our big present was. You know, and if I wanted a bicycle or, or whatever it was, and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what they had for me, but downstairs I knew there was a big gift. And we'd be there at the top of the stairs just waiting for my dad to say, okay, you can come down now. And we'd go downstairs, and there was this gift. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. And then it didn't stop there. We'd have breakfast together. Then we'd have dinner together, amazing meal with family. And then we'd open the presents from around the tree, which could take about four hours because, again, it was one present at a time. Everybody watch you open it. You say thank you to the... And it was just an incredible day. It's like gift-giving lasted all day. It was really worth looking forward to. And one of the things my parents never bought into, and I'm just looking at how many kids are here because I don't want to um, disillusion any children prematurely who may or may not believe certain things. On that, our friend Will Murray told us a story. He was preaching on a Christmas Day service one time, and he got to the end of his preach, and he, he wanted to call for a response to salvation, and he wanted to ask, who wants to give the hearts to God? Who wants to give the hearts to the Father? Who wants, and instead he said, who wants to give the hearts to Father Christmas? <laughs> There's no coming back from that. So. But one of the things my parents never bought into, and we kind of, we kind of played along, when we woke up, we go, he's been, he's been, knowing that he was really, you know, somebody else. But what they never bought into was, if you've been naughty, you'll get a lump of coal. Yeah? You know, he's making a list, he's checking it twice. We're going to find out who's naughty or nice. They never bought into that. So we never felt that what we got was a reward for our behavior. It was just a gift that we didn't deserve. And some of us look at Jesus like he's Father Christmas. That he's making a list. He's checking it twice. And if he did, you know what we'd find out? None of us have been nice. Scripture says, none are righteous, not even one, only him. But because he's been righteous, then we receive good things from him, not because of what we deserve. And so we would look forward to Christmas Day every year because without fail, we received amazing things. Without fail, it was an incredible time of family. Without fail, it was an incredible time of celebration. I grew up in an Anglican church, and the only thing I didn't quite like about Christmas when I was little was just after we'd opened our presents, they'd say, right, it's time for church, and we'd have to go and sit in church knowing all our presents at home, just desperate to get back to our presents. (laughs) Until we got a little bit older and we realized, you know, maybe our priorities needed altering a little bit, but did anybody remember that feeling? Maybe you still have it. My mum still gets excited about Christmas, and she ropes us all in. When I was visiting um, a few years ago, my nephew and niece were very small. So my mum said on Christmas Eve, she said, we've got a Father Christmas outfit. Won't you put it on and walk past their house? Because they'll be at the window looking out for Father Christmas. And if you just walk past, you don't, just walk past the house, and, and then they'll think Father Christmas in the area. I said, no, I'm not doing that. Don't be... My mother's a master manipulator. Eventually, there I am, found myself in a Father Christmas outfit, walking up the road. 
And as I'm walking up the road, some complete stranger stops me and he says, excuse me, do you know where Park Road is? And I couldn't resist, I said, I know where all the roads are. <laughs> <laughs> Who still gets excited about Christmas? Who used to get excited about Christmas? Now, some of us think we outgrow it. Some of us, some of the, the mystery and the joy and the fun disappears. But I want to talk about a day that we can anticipate that is going to be amazing. But actually, many of us, as we've become more mature and sensible, have kind of not really, we haven't held on to the joy and mystery of this day. And that's the day, not when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, but the day when Jesus comes back. And it is going to happen. And some of us, yeah, well, we've been waiting 2,000 years. Who knows if it's going to happen? Others, we've got a right theology, but our hearts aren't where our minds are. But Scripture is very clear. And there's a warning about growing um, complacent. There's, there's, there's Scripture's warning of us forgetting that He's returning. And we read that in Matthew 25, the parable of ten virgins. And it says, I'll read it to you. You don't have to put this, this Scripture on the screen. But in Matthew 25, Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. For those of you who've got your Bibles, uh, it's Matthew chapter 25. And in verse 5, it says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And then suddenly they wake up, and the bridegroom's on his way. And some of them are prepared. They've got oil in their lamps. Speaking of, you know, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. And that, that's, that's that passion, that zeal, that's that Holy Spirit connection. And some haven't, and they go around, oh, we better get prepared quickly. And it's too late. Because they've grown tired and weary of waiting. And you know, that actually happened at the first coming of Jesus as well. That from the end of the, New, of the Old Testament to the coming of Christ was approximately 400 years. And many people had given up hope that the Messiah would ever arrive. Oh, it's been so long, it's probably never going to happen now. And it was into that context that Isaiah wrote, those who wait upon the Lord will rise up on wings like eagles. It's those who maintain this expectancy that Jesus is coming. And it's going to be the greatest day of our lives. Hopefully. For those of us in Christ, it's going to be the greatest day of our lives. For those outside of Christ, it's going to be a terrible day. But we're all going to stand before Jesus. And there's going to be this day of judgment. And for believers, there's a whole range of thinking on this. Some people don't think about it at all. Some people have fear. I know many Christians who are afraid of dying. Maybe you're here and you're afraid of death. We needn't afraid. I'm not afraid of dying. I'd like to die in a nice, easy, painless way, if at all possible. I'd like to just go to sleep one day and not wake up. That doesn't... In fact, a few years ago, I was this close to death. My, my, my wife got a phone call. I had COVID. I was in ICU. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, my blood pressure disappeared. My heart rate went up to 240 beats a minute. 
the nurses and the doctors went into a panic. They were getting the paddles out and all of that. And I was laid there. You know, when you see it on ER, it's exciting. When you're seeing it from that angle, less exciting. <laughs> and I was acutely aware. And the doctor told me, she thought that was it. She thought they lost me. And I, I was aware, this could be it. I was praying, and I said, Lord, if this is it, look after my family. They're your responsibility now. I'd prefer to stay around for a while for their sake. But if you take, and I wasn't afraid of dying. And we have fear, death should hold no fear for us, because to die is to be with Christ. And to stand before Christ and his judgment seat should hold no fear for believers. But for many, there is a, even a fear of judgment because we don't understand what will happen. And I want to just unpack a little bit what's going to happen when we stand before Jesus. Is that okay? Not to make us dread that day, but to help us prepare for that day. Be ready for that day. So we're going to unpack this. And there's, there's two scriptures I want to look at, and I'm going to read them. And probably at the beginning, after I've read them, it might bring some confusion to you, okay? But don't worry. I will confuse you, and then we will unpack it, and you will no longer be confused. Is that okay? So stay with me. So the first scripture is in Matthew 25, and we won't read it all, uh, but you can read it when you get home if you're not uh, uh, if you're not familiar with the verses. And it's the parable, Jesus tells a parable or a story of sheep and goats. And it starts in Matthew 25, verse 32. And it says, before him, before Jesus, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And he will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How many of you would be excited about hearing those words? Hey, Declan, welcome. Come, come see what I've been preparing for you for 2,000, for 6,000, 8,000 years. The whole world was, and universe was created in six days. But I've been preparing a place for you for thousands of years. Sound fun? Bit excited? You want to see what you get for Christmas? <laughs> and they go. And then he explains why. He says, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. And they say, when? Anybody know the Keith Green song? It's brilliant. Keith Green does a song about this. Go check it on Spotify or Apple Play or whatever. When, Lord? When did we do And he said, in as much as you've done it for the very least of mine, you've done it to me. And then he approaches the goats. And he says, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who wants to hear that? For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. And I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. And I was hungry, I was in prison, I was sick, all of these things, and you didn't do anything for me. Depart from me. 
And we read that, and some of us get a bit confused. Because as Keith Green says at the end of his song, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this passage, is what they did or didn't do. Does that conflict with anybody's theology here? That you would, you would get paradise or hell depending on your works? Who, who, who would think that's a bit, bit of a problem for my theology? I hope all of you would raise your hands and say, yeah. I thought we were saved by grace, not by works. I thought it was what Christ did on a cross, not what I did for people. So it seems a bit confusing, this scripture, to some of us. But we'll unpack that just now, okay, if you are confused. Another, another scripture. But what that, what that scripture, what that parable is clear about is there is eternal reward or eternal punishment. Those things are real. Likewise, in Revelation 20, from verse 11, this is the Apostle John. He has a picture. He has a, a vision of what will happen at the end of all things. And he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. This is the end of all things. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Is that a problem for any of our theology? You were judged according to your works? It's, it's a bit of a, ooh, my mind starts like, twitching a little bit. This, God, I thought, it was, I thought it was about the cross. I thought it was about the blood of Jesus, not about what I'd done. And it is. We're going to unpack it, okay? And the sea gave up the dead and, and who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You go, Mark, I thought this was going to be an upbeat, fun, Christmassy type of preach. Now you're talking about judgment and lake of fire. But it is a positive preach. Because those who are in the name, in the Lamb's book of life, look forward to eternal blessing. So let's have a look at judgment and what judgment day means for us and what it's all about. And how do, how do we... How do we consolidate all these ideas and all these scriptures in a sound way that can bring us hope, faith, excitement at that day, and also spur us on to make sure as many people as possible can join us? Because like my Christmas days when I was little, it wasn't simply about what I could get. It was watching the joy of other people seeing what they could get. So what's the purpose of Judgment Day? Because, you know, the kind of popular myth, if, if you watch TV, if you look at the media, people think it's Judgment Day is when each person gets to stand in front of God and explain why they deserve a place in heaven. Right? That's not what it is. Because God already knows. God already knows who's going where. 
And it's not like a human trial. In a human trial, if I come before a judge, I have to explain to the judge what I did, why I did it. I have to try and explain the motivations of my heart, uh, maybe even deceive him, if my, you know. Maybe I'm self-deceived, because most of us are. You ask most people in the world today, are you a good, oh yes, I'm a good person. If I stand before God, I'm going to explain to him what a good person I am. But God knows all things, including your heart, more than you do. So you go, well, what's the purpose of Judgment Day then? If God already knows where we're going, why do we need Judgment Day? And there's three reasons for Judgment Day. And when we understand the reasons, then as we unpack it, it it all makes a, a lot more sense. The first is it's a time of the vindication of God and His ways. In the Psalms and many, many places through Scripture, it says things like, your ways are perfect, yeah? All your ways are just. You are righteous. And on that day, the whole world will see that God was right. So one of the famous uh, atheists, who, you know, they, if you look on YouTube, they debate Christians all the time, and make comments. And I remember one atheist saying, God is... is if." God doesn't exist, but if he does, oh, he was asked, if God did exist, what would you say when, when you stand before him? He said, I'd tell him how evil he is. Because, you know, he calls his children to get sick and wars, and he does this, and he does this. How evil he is. And you, go, you arrogant man. On that day, all of man's arguments will be silenced, and everybody will see that God's ways are absolutely just. There has only been one true injustice in the history of the universe. And that's what happened to God himself on the cross. And we will be silenced. God, I deserve more. God, I didn't deserve this. God, I... No. When you look at who you are, truly, and you look at who he is, truly, and it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, you are Lord. You are right. You, know, you are so infinitely wiser than us. And we will all see it. And we kind of right now, those of us who are in Christ, we kind of know it to some degree. But on that day, he will be vindicated in all of his ways. Every time you've complained, it's not fair. Anybody ever said that to God? Anybody been a job? Why me? You know, why me is the worst question. Because what you're saying is, couldn't this happen to somebody else instead? (laughs) And you'll see that even in your suffering, even in the bad things, God's hand has been at work. The second purpose is that those things, it will be vindicated. It will be made public, not just who God is and his nature, but the rewards or punishment that I receive will be made public. Everything that I've tried to hide will be revealed. All hidden things will be revealed. All your deepest secrets will be revealed. Anybody want to squirm at that one? Tell tell you, when you see everything about me, you're going to be shocked. How could he call himself an elder? What a terrible guy. One of my favorite quotes is... um, It goes like this. Next time somebody slanders you, just be grateful they don't know how bad you really are. (laughs) 
And some of you are going to, you've got problems already with that, but Mike, I thought, you know, my sins were forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I thought God had forgotten my sins. We'll, we'll deal with that in a minute. But God will reveal all things. And it will also be the time when God will assign each person to their eternal place. So that's the purpose of judgment. Who's the judge? The Father is the judge, we're told. The Father will judge us, God the Father. We read about that in Matthew 18 and Romans 14. We're also told that the Son judges. Matthew 25, we've just read. Also in Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5. One of the most repeated themes of the New Testament. You know, this New Testament is all about, oh, Jesus, Jesus just loves everybody. Jesus would never judge. You know, the world likes to tell us, Jesus, God is a God of love. And he is a God of love. But one of the most repeated themes of the New Testament is that Jesus is the judge. And he's a perfect judge. And here's the thing about being a perfect judge. If I'm a judge and, and somebody comes before me, let's say they've come and murdered all your family, and you're, you're witnessing the proceedings, and Declan's murdered your whole family, and he stands before me. And I say, Declan, I find you guilty. But you know what? I love you, bro. I'm such a loving judge. I'm not going to punish you. It's okay. Forget about it. As you're witnessing that and the terrible things he's done to your family, do you consider me a loving judge or an evil judge in that moment? And the world wants to make God an evil judge by saying, ah, he'll just forget all the wrongdoing and just let it all pass. He can't. Because a judge has to uphold the law. He has to uphold righteousness. He has to punish trespass. And that's why Jesus came. If God was a God who could just let things slide, then the death of Jesus was in vain. And Jesus himself is the judge. That's a, a key theme of the New Testament. The angels are involved in judging. And this might shock some of you. We somehow are involved in judging. And the New Testament, and I don't know how this works exactly. There are some mysteries. I don't have all the answers. We will judge angels. Did you know that? Judgment Day, you'll be part of the judging as well. You'll be the, on the judging panel. So if that's doing the judging, who will be judged? Angels will be judged, and all of mankind will be judged, including believers. But for believers, the coming judgment holds no threat. There is no, now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean, like some have read it, none of us feel bad when we sin, right? Because there is still conviction for those who are in Christ Jesus. What it's saying is we don't need to fear hell. There is no condemnation. You're not going to hell. So judgment day holds no fear. But it would be good to know, wouldn't it, if I'm going to be judged, by what standard or on what basis am I going to be judged? And this is where we can unpack 
particularly that scripture from Revelation. Remember in, this, in, in, in that passage in Revelation, it talked about books, multiple. Multiple books, and then it said the book of life. And so if you can imagine, this is how it'll work. First of all, will be the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Who is saved? Who has surrendered to Christ Jesus? Who has allowed the death of Jesus to substitute for their own death and punishment? Who was engaged in that divine exchange where I've come to Christ and he said, let's do a swap. And I've said, I've got nothing to offer you except my own pride and sin and shame and guilt. And he said, okay, I'll take that and I'll give you what I have, which is my righteousness. And only once we've engaged in that divine exchange, that's what we bring before the judgment seat. Do I bring my own guilt and shame and sin? Or do I bring the righteousness of Christ? And so first, there's the Lamb's book of life. Okay, you've got life, you don't have life. And that's the main thing. But then there are other books. And people are judged according to what they've done. And Scripture is very, very clear that there are degrees of reward and degrees of punishment. And the first criteria for those things is the degree of revelation that we've received. To him who's been given much, and Matthew 25 also includes the the parable of the talents. I've given you five talents, what did you do with it? To him who's been given much, much is expected. And the greater revelation, the greater standard by which we will be judged. That's why I've kind of half-jokingly told some people it's better if you don't come to church. Because you come and listen and listen and listen. You're gaining revelation, but you're not adjusting your hearts. You're just storing up a stricter judgment. I'm not saying don't come to church. I'm saying when you're here, adjust. (laughs) Yeah? Does that make sense? There's a greater revelation. And so there's a greater um, expectation. Just like, who's a parent? Parents here. Do you have the same expectations of a five-year-old as you do for a 15-year-old? You don't judge them the same way, right? You don't reward them the same. You don't have the same expectations. You have the same relationship. They're both your children but one you have a greater expectation of. And not all men have received the same measure of revelation. So in one sense, there's only one criterion. That is your response or obedience to God. Whether you're in Christ or not. But beyond that, in terms of degrees of reward or punishment... There's degrees of revelation. So some people get uncomfortable. What about somebody who's never heard the gospel? Will they go to hell? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever been uncomfortable with that that idea? That somebody who's never heard the gospel might go to hell? Well, Romans 1 explains that even people who've never heard the gospel are without excuse because the universe itself displays the very nature of God. And if they're genuinely seeking God, they'll find him. Right now, there are stories of hundreds and hundreds of people in places like Gaza where it's impossible to get, them with the, get to them with the gospel, but Jesus is visiting them in dreams and in visions. And then they 
They have an opportunity to respond. But the sobering truth is, for the vast majority, if they never hear the gospel, they're very unlikely to be saved. Paul writes that in Romans. How will they believe if they've not heard? And how will they hear if we don't go? And so we have a, this should be, as much as it's excitement for us, it's like, what about everybody else? Don't we want everybody else to share in, in the joy and excitement? We don't want anybody excluded. But do you think a person who's never heard the gospel but has never received Christ receives the same degree of punishment as somebody who's heard the gospel on a daily basis and deliberately and willfully rebelled against it and refused to accept Christ? And it's not even about how naughty they've been. Yeah, it's not who's naughty and nice. It's not about how... E- it's, it's their sins in relation to their revelation. And so, the opposite is also true. Our rewards aren't based on how much we've done in isolation. It's how much we've been obedient to the revelation we've received and the state of our hearts. So do I deserve a greater reward than you this morning because I'm preaching and you're listening? Do I, res- do I deserve to be rewarded for what I'm doing now? You don't know. I only know in part because my own heart is deceitful. Maybe I'm doing this out of a passion for Jesus, out of obedience to the King. Maybe I'm doing it for my own reputation and ego. And maybe I'm doing it for the praise of men. And because afterwards, lots of you are going to come up to me and say, Mike, that was awesome. Thank you so much. (laughs) Then I've received my reward. Maybe I'm doing it with selfish motive. And that's on the day of judgment, these things will be revealed. Maybe myself, who's had a revelation of Jesus since I was four or five years old, that that I've, I've... I had the privilege of being part of incredible church like this under incredible leadership that have guided me, that have helped me. There's great expectation on me because I've been given an overwhelming privilege. I remember a young lady who visited us many years ago got saved out of prostitution and drug addiction. Incredibly broken. Her, her whole life story was basically neglect, abuse, the whole thing. I remember one day, everything had become a bit too much. She'd come out of prostitution. She'd stopped taking drugs, but she was a bit overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed. Do you ever get overwhelmed in church? And she was outside, and she was having a cigarette. Now, I don't think it's ideal to smoke a cigarette. But this is a woman who's changing her whole life. She comes out of prostitution. She's got no means of income. Her, Her old pimps are after her. She's like... It's like, this is an incredible turnaround. And somebody sees her smoking and rebukes her. That's a sin. And they're placing a burden on her, not commensurate with the revelation or the place that she's had in Jesus. And I think if, we never saw her again, but I think if that girl, if all she'd ever done was cling to Jesus, never be in ministry, never see anybody else saved, but stay clean, stay off, I think... Her reward in many ways would have been greater than mine because the challenges she faced were far greater than the challenges I faced. And that's not an excuse for sin. It's, it's an understanding that 
You know, the, the world talks about pri white privilege and privilege, right? And a lot of that is garbage. But in the kingdom, some of us need to understand how privileged we are and what our responsibility is. We are the older children in the house. We should be doing more. And sometimes, you know, it's like when your kid arrives home and they've done a painting at school, and you go, that's a beautiful giraffe. That's you, Daddy. Yes, of course it is, yes. <laughs> and you pin it to the fridge, and it's like, this is amazing, best work of art ever. Objectively, it's rubbish, right? Objectively, it's garbage. Nobody's going to pay for it. Nobody's going to frame it. It's never going to be in the Louvre. But to you, it's special. Why? Because it's given with love, and it's the best that that little three-year-old can do. If your 30-year-old son comes to you with the same degree of painting, you might think, maybe you can do a little bit better. And actually, even our be my best ever preach, where I've seen dozens of people saved and people healed and, and set free and demons cast out, it's like that painting and God goes, thank you, my son, I love it. It's actually garbage compared to what I can do, but thank you, because I know you did your best and you put your heart into it. And my best works are that, actually. So when I come before him thinking I, deserve, I don't deserve a reward, because then it's not a reward. It's a wage. But the more I've been gifted, the more I've been given, the more is expected. And what will be judged is everything we've done in our lifetime. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Our deeds, our words, and our thoughts will be judged. Matthew 6, Luke 12, and 1 Timothy 5 tells us, nothing now hidden will not be revealed. And this is where we come to a screeching halt and people go, wait a minute, I've got two problems with that statement. The first problem is that God said he will remember my sins no more. And the second problem is we're saved by grace, not by works. So can I unpack that? And as I unpack it, you'll begin to see how all of these scriptures tie together in one unity that is glorious and beautiful. Even my best deeds are polluted by me. There's a little bit of sin in everything I do in a sense. Nothing is pure because I'm not 100% like Jesus yet. You know, for, I've got a nickname, nobody, because nobody's perfect. <laughs> but I'm not perfect. And so if I'm going to be rewarded for what I've done, I can only be rewarded in the light of who I truly am, where I've come from, what I've overcome, what my, the hidden motives of my heart are. And he said, but didn't God say, I will remember your sins no more? And I said, yes, he did. But does that mean that God has literally forgotten them? Because if he's literally forgotten them, that means God is no longer omniscient, all-knowing. There are things he doesn't know. And from experience, I can tell you, Satan doesn't forget my sins. He loves to remind me. Even I will forget my sins. 
but he loves to remind me. And the little cliche I often use is when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future, because he's going to stand before this judgment seat of Christ one day. So God hasn't literally forgotten, otherwise there'd be this weird experience in heaven where Satan would come to God and say, hey, what about what Declan did? Oh, I don't remember that. Well, let me remind you. Oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. Oh, I forgot about it. It's more like this. If Tony owed me 10 million rand, he'd probably struggle to repay it. And let's say he's promised to repay me my 10 million rand by tomorrow. Is that going to be possible? So he comes to me in fear and trepidation, sweating. Mike, I know I owe you 10 million rand. I, 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 know, I, I acknowledge that. I'm not saying I don't, but right now there's just no way I can pay you. And I say, Tony, forget about it, bud. What am I saying? I'm saying you're free. I'm never going to hold it against you. Your debt is cancelled. We're not going to forget that that debt once existed, but it, there's never, it's never going to come between us. It's never going to alter our relationship, except maybe with the possible exception that he might love me a little bit more. And actually, in some ways, I don't want to forget my sin. Because if I forgot all my sin, it would make me not realize just how great the gift of salvation is. Only when I know what I deserve do I know the glory of what I've been given. And so when it comes to degrees of punishment, it's, it's easy to say, well, yeah, God needs to kind of tell us what all the bad things these people did. But when it comes to degrees of reward, he also has to show us where we come from, what we've overcome, what we've done, the secret motives of our hearts. And you go, oh, but that's going to be terrible, and it's going to be embarrassing, and it's going to be shameful. But that isn't the purpose. Rather think of it this way. Who's heard Declan's testimony? He did some pretty sketchy things in his past, right? Does it make you think less of him now or more? Does it make you think less of Jesus or more? When he gives his testimony and he tells you what he used to be like, does that bring shame to him or glory to Christ? Yeah? So when I stand there and he shows you what a scumbag I am, you're not going to be thinking, Mike's such a scumbag because you know what you're like as well. You're going to be, thank you, Jesus, that you could even use a guy like him. And I suspect maybe, maybe there'll be moments of regret. Oh, God, I could have done so much more. Maybe there'll be moments of shame. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I dishonored you. Maybe there will be tears. But he will wipe away those tears. And he'll say, enter my rest. And so when we see the parable of the sheep and the goats, and we look at that, and we look, we'll unpack the language in a minute, we see they're not being rewarded for what they've done. What they've done is being revealed in light of who they are in Christ. And that's the second uh, problem people have. If we're saved by faith, how can we be judged according to our works? Now, the first thing is there's judging and there's judging. So a negative judgment is what punishments you will get. For us, the judgment is different. For us, the judgment isn't like standing before a, a judge in a criminal trial.
For us, it's more like we are gymnasts. And he scores us to decide what degree of reward we receive. But Scripture is very clear, and this is, this is you know, um, Scripture is full of uh, Scriptures exhorting us to behave a certain way, to meet together, to add to our faith goodness and, all of, and to do things. And that's because, as James tells us, faith and works are inextricably linked. True faith will always produce works. It will always produce fruit. Works are the evidence that there has been faith. So a judgment according to works for us is really a judgment about faith. So when we look at the parable of the sheep and the goats, notice that the decision about whether they are a sheep or a goat is made first. First he divides them. He doesn't look at their works first. He first divides them into sheep and goats. That's a decision of grace based on faith. Then it's followed by the reasons why that is the right decision. These are the good works which are evidence that you are the sheep. Notice that he calls them blessed. Blessed means they are objects of God's undeserved favor. They enter an inheritance. An inheritance isn't what you earn. It's not what you deserve. It's what you get when somebody dies. Enter, say, enter your wage, enter your inheritance. And that inheritance was prepared before the world. What they did was an overflow of their faith and love. So this judgment according to works is really was saved by grace through faith. Salvation is holy by grace. And all believers are saved equally. But there is a variation in the rewards received. In 1 Corinthians, Paul warns how we build. How do we build? He says, some of us build with, with, on the foundation of Christ with valuable things and others with wood, hay, and straw. He says, and our works, what we do, will be tested by fire one day. And some of us will come through like with our butt cheeks burning, yeah, just get through. For others, if we built with valuable things, with things of the kingdom, we enter into a great reward. And I don't want, e I want everybody there, if, if the best I can get you in is with, with burning butt cheeks, great. <laughs> but I would rather everybody stand before the throne room of God and hear about the great rewards. And what do those rewards look like? Well, Scripture is a little bit quiet on that. Because the things we value in this life aren't very valuable in eternity. Money, gold. You know, the old joke about the guy who, who asked for a special dispensation, could he take a suitcase with him to heaven? And his suitcase was full of gold. And when they checked it, they said, why, why did you bring paving stones with you? <laughs> but I can tell you one thing that is our reward. Scripture is clear. That Jesus is our eternal reward. So in light of this, I could ask you, what do you want for Christmas? Your two front teeth? What is it? All I want for Christmas is a hippopotamus. Lots of people want lots, lots of things for Christmas. I used to write out lists. I can tell you what I want on that day, the greatest day. The thing that will be the greatest moment. My greatest desire 
is when I stand before him and he looks me in the eyes and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's worth far more than anything this world can offer. And so as we wrap up, that wasn't a Christmas pun, by the way. As we wrap up, (laughs) hopefully this has been helpful in unpacking some of the truths. But my greatest desire for this morning is that we have a deeper revelation, that we have an appointment with Jesus one day. It's the most important day of your existence. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, it's going to be the greatest day of our existence. And rewards or blessings are going to be distributed. Can we be people who would live a life that's aiming for that day? And not fear it. Can we be secured in the love of Jesus? Not being a people who fear death, but people live with the eager anticipation of the return of Christ. And there may be people here this morning. And when I read, if their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they receive eternal condemnation. And you're sat here this morning and you don't know if your book name is in that book. And the only way your name appears in that book is when you accept the life that Jesus gives you by surrendering your life to him, giving it over to him, and receiving the blessings of what he did when he was crucified. And that's the purpose he came as a baby. His birth, the purpose of his birth was his death, to bring life and new birth to us. And if you know you need to be born again, that is to receive the life that he gives that is eternal. Don't leave here without doing that. And I want to ask quickly, if there is anybody here, I know we we don't have a lot of visitors this morning, but you might have been coming to church your whole life, and you've been doing the Christian things, you've been doing the Christian works, but you've never actually surrendered. If you know you need to surrender to Jesus this morning, so that your name is written in that Lamb's Book of Life, If you're not sure whether your name's in there and you want to make sure this morning, I want to ask you right now, without delay, just raise your hand and say, Mike, I need to make sure. I want want to make sure my name's in that book. Is there anybody who needs to respond? Well, that's good news, hopefully, is it? Oh, there was somebody, thank you, Jesus. That's amazing. Well done. Well done. Well done for your courage. And you know, Scripture says, if you acknowledge me in front of people, I will acknowledge you. And when we stand before the throne room of God and the judge is there, we're not alone. We have an advocate. We have a lawyer at our side, and that lawyer is Jesus himself, who says, he acknowledged me. I acknowledge him. He belongs to me. His name is in my book. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Love, maybe one of the leaders can just... Just come alongside him, pray with him, talk to him. And for the rest of us, can we get excited that Jesus is coming back? A lot more excited than Santa Claus is coming to town. (laughs) Whoopee-doo. Jesus is coming to town. He's coming for us. I don't know when, but he's coming. Let's prepare for that day. Let's live for that day. And let's have as many other people as possible prepared for that day when we see Jesus face to face and we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant.